Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. In this episode, we'll be talking about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. The word NFT has been chosen as the word of the year for 2021. And in this episode, I'll be interviewing the founder of a project called Punkscapes, Jalil. It's uh, actually the first project that I've invested in, in the NFT space. And I've been really involved at a deep level on a daily basis as an investor in this space for a couple of months now. It's a short journey for me, but I've learned a lot and found the space incredibly fascinating. In fact, I've written about it on my blog, several articles there, and uh, I actually hope to continue writing about it and continue my own journey within the space. So expect a few more episodes about this topic. Without further ado then, let's start with Jalil and hear about all the Punkscapes uh, project and actually how to build NFT collection. So Jalil, welcome to our show, Mastermind.fm. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining. It's our first episode on NFTs. We've done some crypto episodes before, but as I've gotten into NFTs myself, I wanted to do a few episodes about NFTs and highlight some of the projects. People might have read the articles I've been publishing on my site. So this is kind of ties into that. And you're the founder of the Punkscapes project, which I also featured in that article. And it was actually my first investment in NFTs. Really? Yeah. Wow, what an honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> like, thank you so much for, for mentioning the project in that article. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just a spare of the moment purchase. A friend of mine told me about you and about the project. And he's like, this is going to be good. Just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And I don't remember That's... exactly where he heard about the project or about yourself, but he was inf- involved in Friends with Benefits and all the other social groups. So I don't know if they were mentioning you there or whatever. But anyway, I'm very happy with the investment and I've since gotten into some other projects over the last month, especially. So I guess we will be talking about what I want to highlight in this uh, this episode is kind of what it takes to launch an NFT project. So Mm -hmm. I guess you're the perfect person to talk us through from the early. So so I think the, the best way to approach it is who are you? What led you to NFTs? Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to give my best. I come from web development, actually. Yeah, over the years, I've worked in quite a few startups. And, and uh, in between the startups, I did consulting. That's maybe interesting to mention. I came into uh, programming uh, from a design perspective. Like I, did, um, I majored in arts in school, and then I went to study uh, information design. I, I dropped out of that, but... Um, uh, the, the, the topic, uh, that was my topic of interest uh, and still is like, I, I find it fascinating, but from there I, um, started working and basically over my career moved more and more from design into actual programming. And in recent re- years, I've basically 90% of my day job, if you will, was just programming a web-based software projects, different like software as a service startups and, um, then consulting as well. I don't know when I uh, after <laughs> um, 
after um, my second startup or third startup failed, I was kind of in a in a in a weird place. So I um I was I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, and I found this beautiful online community called Visualize Value, and just met a bunch of wonderful people there. And the guy who founded that was a designer as well, and like he kind of merges design and philosophy, which I also have a great interest in. And does great visualizations and stuff. And suddenly, in um, I think after the um, Beeple is like one of the most famous NFT artists that was in the beginning of the big ramp up of um, NFTs becoming mainstream. It's like an um, he, he has a say like a 3D artist and paints over the 3D renderings. And he made um, art and published the art every day for like 13 years and that was kind of the thing that that got everyone's attention i think and he started selling these he put them out for free initially he started selling these as nfts and we can get into what uh, nfts are and yeah. stuff i it probably makes sense but uh, yeah that i i think like many people got aware of that and then also within the visualized value community that suddenly became a topic of interest and the founder jack butcher he started dabbling in this space and at that time, for me, it was still super like, what is this? I like, <laughs> um, you're, you're trying to sell like the image. That's interesting, but I wasn't quite sure. And then he, in January 2021, I, we still have 2021, like this year in January, he had a very good success with the NFT stuff. And that was for me fascinating. Before that, I like, I had some Bitcoin, I had a little bit of Ethereum. But it was always something like I never really had the opportunity to, to go deep from a development perspective, especially in Ethereum, where you can actually program stuff. And then at that point, I was like, OK, I, I really want to learn this stuff. This is super interesting. And I started digging into Ethereum more and smart contract development um, and NFT development. And yeah, that's how I started early, early this year. And whenever I had time, I just tried to to absorb as much as possible. And then with some friends, I started working on, 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 on a couple of projects. And when they didn't really make the cut um, or didn't make it uh, to, to launch, Punkscapes came out of that. So yeah. Awesome. Is that a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, just, uh, I'm also come from a web development background. So that's what I graduated in and spent uh, must have been 15 years developing stuff in the WordPress space. Oh, nice. So, so I perhaps it's that tech background that also got me interested into crypto. And somehow, as you mentioned, NFTs have captured my imagination in a new way that kind of the past few years in crypto was kind of, okay, I'm following Bitcoin and Ethereum. But this one has got me really the creative juices. I almost want to program again after having not programmed because I was managing the whole business, you know? Yeah. So this, it got me into the creative mode again. So I get what you're, what you're saying there. Yeah. Okay. So that was actually one question I wanted to address is how easy it is for a web developer to pass from web two to kind of Web3 and uh, NFTs, Ethereum, is it an easy transition? Good question. I, d I don't really know. It's hard to say, really. Um, I 
is there a lot of stuff that's been prepared? Because I, I keep hearing that there are frameworks and you just copy something, everything's open source, right? True. So that's the wonderful thing about this space is that uh, um, unlike in the Web 2 world, in, in the Web 3 world, especially when it comes to smart contracts, um, the actual programs that run on the blockchain, um, uh, it's all open source where any relevant project has their contracts open source. So you can really dig through these things and, and learn a whole lot just by reading the code. In my mind, Solidity is the programming language that, that's mostly used uh, for Ethereum. And um, so blockchain development is kind of very narrowly scoped. Like you don't have a lot of things to, to deal with, a lot of options. Like um, it, you can only, for example, talk to other things on the blockchain. So the language is in a way very limited compared to if you were building a website, you can do basically anything. Yeah. So in a weird way, um, when you can program, programming Solidity stuff and smart contracts, it's actually super, super simple. And most of these contracts um, that you can, uh, like for non-NFT contracts, are very basic in a way. Like every programmer, I think, um, uh, that has a basic programming understanding um, can understand these. What's maybe a little bit more involved is getting a grasp on the blockchain itself and the concepts within the blockchain and like have a vocabulary, like things like uh, understanding how blocks are mined um, and created and, and how transactions get consolidated into blocks and all these things. I think you kind of need a basic uh, blockchain, a general blockchain understanding. And then for any programmer, it's kind of simple um, to, to move to, to, to this new programming paradigm and yeah, write some smart contracts um, in that world. Um, and you, you really don't want them to be super complex because the simpler, the less error prone they are and stuff, right? Um, so def it's like from a web developer's perspective, my main area was uh, uh, user interface programming. And from my perspective, that's actually the, the most difficult thing to do well um, mm -hmm. because you have so many different browsers, so many different devices, um, and it has to work everywhere in a performant way. And it's just so many cogs that you have to deal with. It's difficult to test uh, automatically uh, across all of these devices, etc. cetera. Um, so, um, and, and then moving to like kind of back-end API development, if you're building, for example, a, a JSON API that only speaks data and, and moves data back and forth and maybe talks to database, again, that world is kind of uh, smaller and uh, it's restricting in a way compared to uh, front-end web development, right? And this, uh, blockchain development is even a step more narrow and uh, focused than, than... So for me, it's kind of... That was the journey, basically, to... Um, uh, and, and for example, testing becomes much more important because it's such high stakes stuff. Like you want yeah. every little, every function and every little um, conditional to, to be properly tested so you can really trust what you're, what you're building. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. So let's pass on to Punkscapes now. And I think there are at least three areas which I'd like to focus on, which are kind of the story behind them. Mm -hmm. Why punks? What are you trying to do with the scapes, actually? Because this is something very innovative. The art itself and uh, the, the kind of the philosophy, maybe, that you hinted at earlier 
about how you went how you went about things like the fair launch and the transparency you mm-hmm. kind of promote in the discord groups so but starting from the idea and then we kind of can move into these subtopics i think so thinking about nfts there's multiple facets that are interesting i think there's the financial investing aspect um but especially with these NFT collectibles that have been growing over the the last few years um most of them or many of them are um personas like the crypto punks is the most prominent yeah. one right so um you can really use these and people are using these as avatars and identities in in a way you don't even have to know who that other person is they are crypto punk number xyz and um uh, their identity is coupled to this crypto punk and um they can work under this um persona they can publish content under this persona um and really build yeah build an online identity that's completely decoupled from their actual real identity and this is on many levels i think very interesting or one more point about this these nft identity collectibles what's so interesting about them being so coupled to the blockchain is you also suddenly have a way to move money around and exchange value completely permissionlessly and um uh, without talking to or the necessity to knowing who you're dealing with you don't have to know like a bank account and an address for somebody it's all on the blockchain and somebody that has an like a complete anonymous or pseudonymous identity I he can work for me um and and I I can pay him for example yeah just by the trust that they have been built that they have built under this persona and this point was super fascinating for me much much more personally than um the financial aspects of um investing around NFTs is this idea that you have a digital thing that you can own that people can recognize and then tie your identity to it and 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 work under the, under that pseudonym basically i think just to interject it, yeah, it's please, worth yeah. emphasizing the the financial aspect of it because when so far whenever like we could do anonymous twitter accounts we could create kind of anonymous or pseudonymous online personas but when it comes to getting paid or paying mm-hmm. you have to dox yourself because like what's your bank account Okay, now okay, bank account maybe not so much, but ultimately you have to shift back to your real identity in the real world. So I think that's a very good point that we could create. And I think maybe maybe it can sound a bit negative as well because why are you hiding behind this persona, right? Why not show but there's a good argument to be made for equality i think true i completely agree so there might be i don't know people who feel that they are marginalized or they might come from countries where they don't even manage to receive payments so the blockchain kind of eliminates a lot of the barriers that people have been facing um for working online especially so yeah that's like a very good point yeah Yeah, I I completely agree. Yeah, that's a um yeah, it's it's like whether you're um a woman in a in, in the tech sp- uh, woman in the tech space or you're from 
I don't know, a, r- a rural country in Africa. It doesn't really matter uh, in, in this I world. Think, right? I think it's also a good way of testing out your thesis, right? Like if you're a woman and you feel that you haven't gotten the opportunities just because you're a woman. Yeah, that's right. being a man, you know, see what happens. Being a man for a while. <laughs> or the other way around, you know. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the... A lot of the women on Twitter, like the sexy pictures on Twitter, there yeah, there are men behind. Men. <laughs> so of course, it can work both yeah. ways. <laughs> of course, no, definitely. Um, yeah, but anyway, so yeah, this this identity aspect um, uh, that's driven by NFTs was very interesting for me, and um, there is uh, one uh, like one of the first NFTs that I bought was. Um, an ENS domain, Ethereum name services domain, which is, I was completely fascinated by it from the get-go because it's a way to easily identify individuals on the blockchain. And similar to how when we're like using a website, instead of putting in the IP address, we put in a google.com and then that gets resolved to the actual IP address, whatever that is, a bunch of numbers. And the same is true for addresses on the blockchain. When people use these um, ENS domains, they're like, I personally, I have jaleel.eth and, and then that gets resolved to like a super long string um, of characters. Uh, um, and then people can, instead of remembering that string, they can talk to jaleel.eth, send me money there, make sure that maybe something is coming from me, etc. So that, w- that was one of the first uh, NFTs that I got, uh, uh, that I bought personally and got into. It's an NFT itself. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. also funny. I think it's something that you can own on the, on the blockchain. And for me, these two things together kind of made sense. They form a fully, a, a feature set that in which you can um, fully own your online identity. And we have profile photos. We have these naming systems, but for a complete profile. And when we look at these um, social networks, like, your cover image kind of sets the scene. Um, and also when you look at the CryptoPunks, for example, they all have the same uh, background. I mean, that, for example, that makes them stand out, of course, or recognizable as well, but they, they are really recognizable. They're these tiny um, 24 by 24 pixel little images. You, you immediately know, okay, that's a CryptoPunk when you see one. Um, and yeah, so it kind of just made sense to make backgrounds for um, cover for photos, basically for these identity profile picture NFTs. And there's just so many profile picture NFTs already around that I thought that would be interesting. And actually also my friend, Jack Butcher, uh, initially, like we were exchanging and talking about that idea. And um, yeah, he basically pushed me to, to work on this. He owns a CryptoPunk himself. There's also another very successful um, project called the Board App uh, Board API Club, and my initial initial idea was to create little houses as cover photos for the for the apes. Um, but then he he put me onto the crypto punks, and that's where the punkscapes basically the concept was born. And I'm as I mentioned, I came into the uh, into like I, when I finished school, I was more in this arts kind of world. And that was for, and over the years, I've completely, I stopped uh, painting and drawing and whatever, but pixel art is kind of tangent, like it's, 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 it was, it wasn't too difficult for me to dive into that and, uh, and try to figure out how to make something nice. So yeah, it really made sense for me. And, and that's also like one point that was so cool for me to, to be able to move from the full on programming stuff back into art 
And yeah, so I, yeah, that's how I ended up uh, starting and building Punkscapes. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's go straight into the design element mm -hmm. of the project. And I think you're one of the, usually teams are a bit bigger. There's like a designer, a developer, a promoter, and you're kind of all in one. <laughs> and now, now the team has grown, obviously, but I think you started it doing everything yourself, if my understanding is correct. So you can tell us how involved every bit of the project is. So let's start with the design. How, how did that sure. come about? Yeah, yeah. So maybe, um, yeah, so as you say, there's like multiple different um, competencies that you kind of need to pull this together. And I'm just, I don't know, very lucky to be in a position where I was kind of able to do all of them by myself. Again, I kind of, I don't li like, I, I, I think I'm an autodidact. Like I, I learned everything on the internet kind of thing. But my, my perspective is you always learn everything from other people anyways, whether you go to uni or you learn from blogs online, um, you just, yeah, you learn from other people. So I'm was fortunate enough to, to like have all of these um, kind of ready with my web development background and my art background and programming background. Anyway, so about the art, maybe one interesting point is for me, there's two different kinds of NFTs, um, really. There's the NFT collectible and there's the NFT um, one, of, one out of one artwork. And both have completely have their place, but they function... Um, completely differently. So the, the one is I am an artist and I create an artwork and it's a unique artwork. Um, maybe I have a series of them and they're kind of tied together, but each, each of them is like its own thing. And I publish this and sell it as an NFT that people can own through like a platform and, and sell it on the blockchain. And then um, it lives on on the blockchain and people can sell it, etc. For these one out of ones, and I made a couple just to like get to know the space before I did the punkscapes. Um, these one out of ones are really um, people who like the art buy them. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, you put some effort into creating them. Um, I, I don't really see, um, yeah, it's much more, I like the creator, I buy it. I think it's much less of a, like an investment tool or something like that. And perhaps there's no element of community either. True. Yeah. You're basically, yeah. So it's like, there's no expectation of something happening afterwards. You, you no bought a, a piece of art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just that. Um, and I think that's wonderful and enables amazing. I've seen amazing artists mm -hmm. be able that have struggled financially for, for the last 15 years or whatever. They start creating art on, for the blockchain and sell it on the blockchain permissionlessly to, other people that like their art and suddenly they they're very well off and they do very well. So that's fascinating. And the collectibles are, is a whole other thing of itself. Like most of these, like the, the iconic collections, the, the crypto punks and the board Club, for example, they have a set of 10,000 images and some have even more. And like some have 20,000 and some have less, some have 1,000 or 2,000. It doesn't really matter. The point is there's an entire collection and often so many that you really cannot do them by hand anymore. So you think of character traits that you want your images to represent basically, and you create many little pieces of art and then generate the whole set with an algorithm. In the case of the punkscapes, for example, 
there's like 120 something different traits. So that could be a, a certain kind of a tree or a house or a rocket or a, a kind of landscape. And they're all like jumbled together via code, basically. So it's fascinating to think about. You only need like. Is there is there any meaning behind like the police car or the portal? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, the whole like for me, um, I uh, so there's punkscapes that are on Earth, on um, on Moon, on the Moon, mm -hmm. on Mars, and on the Jupiter's moon Europa, and. Uh, we have little rockets and houses that you can have. And so, yeah, it's, it's just like, it, I think it's, it fits the zeitgeist of today mm -hmm. and uh, you can dream a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I have a, I have a, I have a rocket that's on moon. So that means like we can, we, we fly to the moon, of course, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And the, the cars, obviously. Yeah. Um, police also, coming like, for after example, your Bitcoin. The <laughs> Sorry? The, the police coming after your Bitcoin if you have both. <laughs> True. Yeah, yeah. So Bitcoin is a monument that I have, basically a, a big Bitcoin logo that's uh, stuck in the ground. And the same for Ethereum as like the two big blockchain projects. And yeah, then you have, it's really funny, in a set of 10,000 items, even I, when I was working on the algorithm to generate them based on all of these trades, you see so many of them, it's, it's crazy what the algorithm comes up with. Like there's little stories embedded in these that you as I as an artist I didn't touch the algorithm cr created the connections and mm -hmm. um, the storytelling capabilities with that is really interesting yeah so I find it fascinating to like marry art that you create by hand with code that then generates the final composition um, it's it's very intriguing yeah so Jalila how about the the algorithm that you mentioned is this something that you have to design yourself for every project or is, is it more of the same where you can just customize something existing? And when the algorithm generates all these images, do you hand pick which goes in the, into the collection or how does that work? Yeah, there are libraries that are open source that show like, for example, I think there is a library that basically builds upon the crypto punks themselves and kind of shows like how one could generate these. I don't think it's the original algorithm, but somebody modeled it after that. Um, but to be honest, I never, I, I knew that they were around, but I never actually looked at the code. Is it part of the open source part or is it something? It is separate? open source. Yeah. Okay. There's stuff open source available, but I, I don't know. I really wanted to, experiment with it completely by myself and uh, try to figure it out by myself. And maybe if I wouldn't have figured it out, I would have looked at these packages. But mm -hmm. yeah, I went I went for a more bare bones um, route. And I think like some aspects of the Punkscape collection wouldn't have happened if I would have looked at these other um, open source solutions first. Um, I think there's a couple of things that, that the Punkscapes do differently to your normal collection yeah so I, I i built the algorithm by myself of course with many little open source libraries like for generating images you don't have to write that code yeah, of course. Um, yourself like when you're writing the actual files um but the 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 algorithm that generated these these like what goes with what etc that uh, is what i what i created yeah for the punkscapes and 
when maybe from a programming perspective, what is in, uh, what is interesting is um, instead of starting with the image, I think it's helpful to think of these the other way around. So you basically, let's say you have these 120 different attributes and traits, you can define sort of a distribution of rarities for all of the traits, um, for each individual trait, and then create your algorithm in a way that basically you say, okay, now I want a thousand items jumbled together with these rarities. And then maybe you have extra rules of what goes with what and what doesn't go with, uh, with what trade um, and those kind of uh, narrow the options. But uh, in a way, you start with that. So you start with the actual content versus the, the image representation. And then I sa save all of these files to whatever. Um, I, I save it like a, as a machine-readable um, database thing, a, a JSON file, basically, or people can use whatever they want. Um, and then I, I have a separate uh, tool to generate the images based on that. I was basically the, the a long part of the iterative process was to get the numbers correct. Like when I say, okay, give algorithm, give me a set of 10,000 items. Then I had a, a, another little program that immediately spat out to me, like, what is the um, rare, like, what are the rare items and what's the distribution there? And um, then I was able to fine tune how I want the collection to look like from a rarity distribution kind of, um, and, and, what goes with what, which, which traits uh, go together uh, point of view. Yeah, that, that was definitely interesting. And that's where I spend a lot of time to kind of figure out how to, because um, back to the collect collection point, um, that's really a core attribute of collections. You have these different, you have these traits and these rarities and being a good collectible, it's important that you have a, a nice distribution of, rare items and common items. And that's what people then like to go after and find, uh, find out in the, in this NFT world. Um, so yeah, th that's the main piece of the algorithm, I, I would say. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Can I interject? Of course. <laughs> well, I'm Joseph. I'm John's father. I have been chief financial officer for a number of multinational companies during my working career. Now I'm 65 years old and I'm trying to keep abreast with all these recent developments, starting with cryptos. And when I thought that I was understanding something together with John, my son, um, I was faced with this new development, uh, this uh, <laughs> issue of uh, NFTs. Let's start with the name, NFT, non-fungible token. When you say non-fungible, is it because of its uniqueness and how can you preserve that uniqueness when people are copying so many things and people struggle to protect their copyright? The, the right click save problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Yeah. So the non-fungible part, basically non-fungible token implies that there's also a fungible token, right? Um, and what a, fu a fungible token is, um, for example, a normal currency, the dollar or the, or the euro, one euro is one euro and we can exchange them and they're no different. Yeah. Um, and for 21 million Bitcoin, they're all the same. Exactly. Yeah. So it doesn't matter which Bitcoin you have. Whereas with NFTs, one punkscape, it's one token on the blockchain, 
but you cannot just exchange it with another Punkscape because it has all this uh, metadata attached to it, like the image. And people value these things differently because they look completely different. So you cannot just exchange one Punkscape for another. And that's also one of the principles of these collectibles that you make them all different. No two are alike in the best case. Yeah, so that's where the non-fungibilities, that's what that meaning uh, comes from. It's, it's, you cannot, uh, like, there's only one of these available in this blockchain world uh, on the blockchain. It's like a person, no? You cannot clone. Exactly. Okay. Yes, yes. It's like, um, and I mean, of Unless course. Unless you have identical twins. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so in the context of the blockchain, you cannot clone it. It's forever that thing, um, and you know when it was created, and you know by whom it was created, and you, you can trace the entire history of when it changed hands to, to whom. Yeah? And if somebody were to create a clone of it, basically copy, basically copy and paste it, you could always go back and show, hey, but this was the initial one, the first one. And everybody would disregard the copy because the, the interesting one is the original, uh, uh, the initial token. So this is how we create um, this artificial scarcity in the digital world, which is key. Like it's a, it's a real, it's difficult to, to grasp because of course I can just, it's an image. I can right click, save it and I'm done. I can print it out and put it on my wall and, and uh, be happy. But it's basically a social contract that people agree on. Hey, we, we can now track ownership of things through this medium, through the blockchain. These tokens are unique and we can track when they were created and by whom, etc. And then it's just a social contract be between people um, that, that agree to, to these rules, basically, and, and say, yes, okay, it's verifiable. You are the owner of this CryptoPunk, for example. Yeah, but if I create uh, one of them, one of these tokens showing a red shirt, and then somebody else copies basically the same design and changes the color of the shirt. Mm -hmm. I cannot understand how um, perhaps a non-expert can discern the difference between the two. I think this, we were discussing, we were, me and my dad were discussing this earlier as well. Uh, and there is, it, it is a problem actually, because there are many scams and I don't know if there's fake punk scapes as well, but basically all the big projects get copied, literally the same images are copied in a new collection. It's on OpenSea and even sometimes NFT collectors who are experienced. It just takes one link and you buy from some scammer, not from the original collection. So it's done and it's easily done. It's just a matter of the social contract and awareness. But more importantly, leaving aside the scams, I think if I were to create Punkscapes 2 or whatever, even if it's a derivative, my biggest issue is not the art, it's creating the community that you, Jalil, has, have created with the Punkscapes. And that's what's not reproducible in any easy way. Yeah, I, think, I agree. For, the only way for me to join such a community would be to buy Punk from you. Well, in my case, it's open. Uh, anybody can, can potentially join and ask questions and whatever. But uh, what we currently have, for example, is that within our community, you can verify 
the ownership of a punkscape. Um, and then that gets highlighted um, uh, within the community and people can identify each other. Well, you are part of the club and that is verifiable. That's run by a computer program. Uh, yeah, so part of the inner club, if you will, you can only become um, when you when you actually uh, own one of these, exactly. Therefore, you have to present your credentials, no? In a way, yeah. It's, it's like presenting your credentials, yeah. To whom? Um, who opens the door for you? So oh, that, that's all code. Like, um, uh, you, you, you tell me when I go too deep, but what's so fascinating, one, one really cool thing about the blockchain is that we use um, a public-private key cryptography to communicate with other addresses on the blockchain. So every one of us has an address, and that address is actually just um, is, is a key. We call it the public key, the one that you can share with anybody that identifies you but behind that is also and that that's the thing that you have to keep in private is your private key it's um you can think of it maybe a, like a password and with this private key you can create signatures that anybody can verify that it has to be has to have been created by you um, just by knowing the public key so i don't have to know your private key but if I know your public key, I can verify that the signature must have come from Joseph. And that's basically the little trick. It's a mathematical cryptographic trick that we use to do these verifications. And all that these programs check for is, hey, you claim to be public key so-and-so. And I can prove on the blockchain, I can, I can look, does this address own a punkscape? or a CryptoPunk, or a one-day punk, um, um, whatever, any, any NFT that you can think of. And you provide a signature to the program, and the program says, yeah, okay, this signature is actually, has been created by the private key for this public key. And, and that's a little trick you, you use. So you, you don't have to share your credentials or show your ownership of it to anybody. Um, it's permissionlessly verifiable by anybody. Um, uh, that you own it without having to, to look, look into your books, basically, and see this private key. Did that make sense? I'm not sure it makes sense for my dad, but I'd like to do <laughs> a complete episode on this because digital identities is a super interesting topic. And yes, yeah. Like my dad hates doing the KYC processes for our company, right? Uh-huh. And uh, you have to present all the data. And sometimes, like, why do I need to give you my place of birth, you know, for this KYC thing? And I think what digital identities create is the possibility to verify that I am who I say I am without having to look into all my history, my bank accounts or some irrelevant data, you know. So that's that's uh, we will go into that in another episode. But I think you gave a very good taste within the context of a project. Usually, you have a chat room. Think of it like a club where you have a VIP area that only the holders of the NFT can access, and that's basically where yeah, you get that extra added value as a holder of the of the NFT. True. But what would you discuss in this community? So in our community, we currently, we have like about 8,000 people um, from everywhere in the world. Um, it's, it's truly fascinating for me. It's like, a, um, I mean, I've grown up in the internet, right? Um, but it's, 
it's truly a wake up call when you when you see something like that happen firsthand. Um, I never really thought that would be possible for like a random guy like myself. <laughs> um, so yeah, we have thousands of people um, that are are part of this, and we talk about all kinds of things, um, be it. Things like like we discussed right now, like how do, do these technologies work? Other people create their own projects and ask questions and um, we can sh share information and exchange information. Some community building things that we did, for example, was to have little hackathons and um, uh, art contests where people from within the community could work together um, uh, or against each other and te team up or do it by themselves and to try to um, like create new um, little computer programs or artworks and um, earn prizes and such. Um, so yeah, it's it's really a club for for anything. And we we talk about all kinds of. One day I remember we had a, the most wonderful conversation about yeah, like a philosophic philosophical conversation about um, life really, and it was very cool because we had both people from the CryptoPunks community, which is the most iconic. A crypto punk costs like about half a million dollars. It's um, uh, 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 you immediately recognize these people that own one as like whoa, uh, at, at least from my perspective. Uh, and we have uh, uh, the normal guy like myself who's just new to this thing, and uh, we can all talk together. Um, and the punkscape was basically the entry ticket to to these conversations. So um, yeah, it's it's all kinds of things. It's um, it's a way of for people to express themselves and come together and um, yeah talk about anything that interests them really um, yeah and also uh, what is interesting we we there is people that just know the space very well and know for example of other projects that are starting um, uh, or uh, yeah like Jean yourself you created for example this blog post and you shared it in the community mm -hmm. and we were able to like that's very interesting so it's a way of exchanging ideas and learning really yeah yeah but it can be very expensive no to join this community um i guess yeah depending on how you look at it i mean our community is still open anybody can join and but maybe you have at some to be point, an owner no you have to be no, an no owner. You, you don't even have to be an owner as of now as of now we like it this way but in the future we can we can yeah lock parts of the community up and um i mean we had activities that only owners were able to participate in but the general community is, is still is still open. Yeah. Well, what, what I would say to this is, even if you don't own any NFT, you'll have even without owning anything, you'll you'll be overwhelmed by the amount of communities and information, and yes. all the ingredients that we mentioned you can experience without owning any NFT. So, I don't think it's exclusionary from that aspect at all. I, I would agree. Yeah, I think so. And for example, there's also many free NFTs. Um, when when I myself, when starting out, um, I sold basically um, access early access tickets to the Punkscapes, uh, and I gave them away for free because I just wanted people to like. Um, it was a in a way in retrospect, I didn't plan it really as such, but in retrospect, it was a marketing tool also for me because I was completely unknown in the space. Um, I, I created a collection of little also punks um, that are inspired by the uh, or based on the, the crypto punks, this uh, iconic collection. And I gave them away for free. And um, yeah, I had like a friend from India was able to just get one, for example. Yeah. Or yeah. 
Well, I paid for it. Did I get scammed? <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, did you pay uh, gas, you mean? Or, or did no, you I mean, buy I, I bought secondary? it, no? Okay. I, I think I minted the, it. No? Could it be? Did you mint it? So the, the one-day punks were, were free of charge. And, but you, of course, you have to, on the, to use the Ethereum network. Maybe it, you was, have to pay, it was the gas. Yeah, you have to pay the gas fee. And sadly, it's been the, the, it's like so many people are joining the space and using the blockchain that these gas fees that enable the whole blockchain to run, basically, they're like the fuel of the entire thing. They have become very expensive because so many pe more people want to use the blockchain than the blockchain is able to handle. Um, so it automatically increases the price of using it to sometimes absurd amounts. Um, so yeah, currently, if I would like to send you maybe $5, I would pay $15 for this transaction. And $10, $10 of it would go to waste, basically. Mm -hmm. um, that's how much uh, the blockchain is currently uh, overwhelmed with the usage. So to, to buy one of these punks that I gave away for free, they actually cost around 100 US dollars um, to, to get just because of the ga these gas fees. Yeah. And um, let's, let's talk about the minting process now that we're mentioning the mint. What happens yeah. exactly at mint? So in terms of what happens with like the monetary transaction, everything's flowing mm -hmm. into this one account, I guess, which is sometimes mm -hmm. called the treasury. Who gets that money exactly? So I would like to delve into that. And what's happening in terms of minting? What are we minting exactly? Sure. So before we can do any of that, we have to create a smart contract. And that's, um, I mentioned it initially, it's just a very, it's, it's a simple program that we can deploy on the blockchain. And uh, we have distribu a distributed network of computers all over the world run it and come verifiably to the same conclusions. So uh, same input, same output, basically. Um, and and uh, everybody ag agrees on how to run these smart contracts. And they can be anything, really. But for NFTs, you have to implement, um, there are certain standards that you have to conform to um, that define how to track the ownership, basically, of a single token. Now, for a collection um, like the Punkscapes, um, the, there's 10,000 Punkscapes available. So the smart contract initially defines a range of 10,000 numbers, for example, from one to 10,000, that keep track of every single Punkscape. So they are all identified by just a number, basically. Yeah. So when I deploy it, it just knows, the smart contract only knows there is going to be 10,000 available from 1 to 10,000. And then what's happened, what we call minting, is when people actually, in a way, take ownership of these spots. So they pay the smart contract a certain amount of money that's also been predefined. And they, they, call, they, they call a function in this program that then basically it takes the money and gives them a spot within this, this range of 10,000 numbers in return. And you can do this incrementally, or you can do this randomly. And my algorithm chose random numbers in the entire set. So you pay the smart contract, um, and then the smart contract uh, receives the money and stores the money and gives out ownership of one of these IDs, uh, um, uh, of these token uh, IDs. It's just a number, basically. And the interesting part of that, about that, uh, a very common misconception about the blockchain is that, um, so you have your 
address, you have your wallet. That's what we call like where you have all, um, where you can look at your balances, um, your Ethereum balance and all your tokens. And it looks like you own them, like they're in your wallet, but that's conceptually wrong. The tokens never leave the smart contract. What the smart contract does is that for each token, it has a, a little mapping, if you will. You can imagine a, an Excel sheet with two um, columns and every row is one token. And in the second uh, column is the address of the owner of the token. So it's, it's that's all that it is basically, right? And so actually, I'm looking I'm looking at the Etherscan uh, for my address because I wanted to confirm. I did actually buy it from OpenSea, the one day punk. So that's why uh, I, I okay. had paid. But yes, uh, yes. I didn't know. It's good that you mentioned that they were random the the assignments because I think I bought four or five when minting, and the token IDs are random. Something which yes. I haven't seen many projects do. And for anyone who's interested, if you go on Etherscan and you're looking at your address on the inventory tab, you can see literally what Jalil just said, token ID, the number of the token and owner would be your address. There's literally just a page that has these yeah. two mappings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and now these, these mappings, they can change hands, of course. So I can sell my token ID to you. And then in this mapping, it would just switch the address um, and write the new owner in, into, into the smart contract. And then the blockchain has other ways to verify the history of these changes. All that we call minting is basically the initial writing of the initial owner. So in, initially, it just says zero. There's basically nothing um, set as the owner. And then the minting just sets the initial owner. So there's no art creation happening at Exactly. Minting. No, no. For this there project. is there is projects that um, that use parts of the transaction that creates uh, that initially mints the token. Um, for example, the timestamp or the the hash, um, like the uh, an identifier for the transaction, basically, um, and then uses that somehow to incorporate in the artwork. But my collection was generated beforehand and then uh, deployed with a smart contract before anybody bought it, basically. So you would have gone through the images yourself, checked that they look good, and, and then yes. left the assignment, uh, I guess. Is that yes. Yeah. And now the, the smart contract was um, responsible to hand out these semi. They're not truly random, uh, because that's, really hard. that's basically impossible to do on the blockchain, because what I mentioned before, that we have the same inputs produce the same outputs. It's it's uh, you can't have true randomization on chain itself, uh, but but it's it's uh, good enough of a randomization that nobody like when somebody would read the code, they would be assured that I didn't, for example, reserve certain token IDs that I know would result in a rare image that I didn't reserve the, them for me, um, but that that process was actually uh, truly random. So when people initially bought them, they got one of these ten thousand items and. Um, um, yeah. Very good. And so at that moment, first of all, how do you determine the price? Is it completely up to the, the author, founder? Completely up to the founder. So there's different ways of doing this. Um, there's different auction styles, for example. There's um, what, what uh, some other pr projects have done is like Dutch art auction. Blocks. Art blocks is one of them. Yeah, art blocks is a very, very common one. But um, 
And um, yeah, but it's completely up to the creator of the smart contract, really. So in my case, it was just a flat fee, same for everybody, um, no differentiation at all. The differentiating factor um, in my case was basically when are you able to mint? So owners of this first collectible I created, the one day punks, um, they were able to mint first and then came the crypto punks and then came the public. Um, but they all paid the same price, um, which was about $100 in Ethereum um, at launch time, which sounds expensive. And if you've told me, if you would have told me a year ago that I would have done this, I, I would have said, no, nah, no way, forget it. Uh, it sounds kind of ridiculous to sell. So the punkscapes are tiny. They are 72 by 24 pixels. So if you would look at them in their actual size, they'd be like the tip of your finger, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's funny to think of selling these uh, uh, for $100, but it's definitely on the lower end of prices for collections. So most collections start with at least double, double that amount. Um, so... Yeah, I just set the price. Yeah. yeah. So, so at minting, all that money flows into one address. Correct. So, that, that actually, all the money flows into the smart contract. Um, that's the most efficient way to do it. You can also directly reroute it to an external address, um, a private wallet that some somebody controls. Um, but um, the most efficient way is to just store them in the contract, and then the contract has a. Um, in, in my case, I implemented a withdraw function like a bank account, if you will, that only I am able, as the owner, only I am able to call. Um, so the contract kept all the funds. And then um, when the selling part was done, I was able to withdraw them and um, store them in uh, an Ethereum account that I control, basically. Because um, smart contracts um, are controlled by nobody. As soon as they are deployed, I can never change anything about it. I can only interact with it through the functions that i initially coded in and that's what what also builds trust yeah i like it's it's provably i cannot um rug anybody or like change the program or take tokens back um unless i i would code that functionality in but then people that would audit these things would be able to tell and warn everybody uh yeah so yeah i, I just withdrew the funds to to an external um account that that i control and yeah that's just it's there right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes. So, so it, it doesn't just sit there. I, I did buy a um, after long consideration with my wife as well. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I did I did buy a punk. So what's interesting about that maybe and, and maybe you as a from this from the perspective as a collector can also mm -hmm. say something about this. It's more it's less buying something than it is changing currency, if you will, in my mind, right? It's in a way diversifying. I just had a bunch of Ethereum, the native currency of Ethereum. And it's not really, I, of course, I bought the punk, but I can also sell it again. So it's in a way, it's just storing that value in this image, which is also kind of just another form of money, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah. most people see see this like we like the art we like the projects but on top of that we're kind of increasing our ETH value no i mean the number of ETH tokens that we own if things work out as we hope they but do. this is something that i cannot really understand why is it limited to ethereum therefore it's not in order to buy an image i i have to buy it in ethereum not necessarily um 
there's other blockchains that you can use. Um, it's just that Ethereum was the first one really that drove the space. So the initial idea of having a network of computers where you could track all different kinds of run all different kinds of programs. Um, that was the innovation that Ethereum brought to the world, and Ethereum is the biggest player. And Bitcoin um, doesn't do that, so you can't really do that on Bitcoin. There is a way to like store metadata in Bitcoin transactions, um, and people have like embedded quotes and even images and, and stuff like that in in Bitcoin itself. But there is no way to really track ownership. It's just feeding that stuff into the chain, and then it's gone <laughs> uh, in a way. And yeah. uh, in Ethereum, you can really, you can write these programs to track ownership and it, it's just the biggest platform to do so. But there's others like, um, and there's other blockchains, Solana, Polygon, um, that are currently much, much cheaper, but they have other um, trade-offs, um, I guess. Yeah, trade-offs, yeah, yeah. I, I, to clarify, you can also buy on the second, if you're buying on the secondary market, you can use fiat currencies, you can use other cryptocurrencies to make a bid or even I don't I think if something is priced in ETH you can only pay in ETH but you can put in an offer and you can definitely go from euros to ETH to purchase yeah so that's not really a barrier of entry there but is it more expensive if you buy it in fiat therefore you miss out on something on the launch or it becomes more expensive. With minting, you have to use ETH if it's an, if it's based on the ETH blockchain, Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. I mean, you, you basically, you have to do the exchange first and the exchange also costs some money. So in a way, it's more expensive to, to buy something in fiat currency because you have to do the initial on-ramp. Um, and that, I don't know, it's about something like $50 to, to exchange fiat to, and it doesn't re really matter how much you exchange. It's just like the exchange costs these gas fees. And um, so it's a little bit more expensive, I guess, compared to if you had Ethereum lying around. Yeah. Therefore, if the NFTs continue to be successful, they continue ramping up, etc. They would create a demand for ETH, no? Ethereum. Would that increase the price of Ethereum? I think so, no? I tend to agree. Yes, definitely. Yeah, of course. The more Ethereum, really, the worth of Ethereum is a little bit different if you compare it, for example, to the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. The value of Ethereum is really just a function of how much it's used, um, whatever you use it for. And currently, NFTs are a big part of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and when demand rises, um, demand for the entire network rises and Ethereum the value of Ethereum, Ethereum being basically the fuel of the blockchain, if you will, then the value of Ethereum, of course, rises with it. Yeah, I agree. Now, continuing on this trend, therefore, if people would start understanding NFTs more and uh, they start buying, etc., don't you think that there could be a bit of a glut because um, artists, you know, programmers would sense the opportunity and uh, the supply can start outpacing demand at, at a certain stage. That could bring a collapse now of the prices. Good point. Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, and that's definitely happening and uh, it will happen and is already happening. 
Well, in a way, I see it similar to like also the startup world, for example, right? There's just so many things being created that are not actually valuable in the end, and then they just die out. And that's the same thing in this NFT world. I don't think that the demand for the really good ones will be lower. The demand for the really good ones will be higher if more people are interested in NFTs and thus more people are selling NFTs. But the demand for a lot of NFTs will probably go to go go to zero at some point. Yeah, um, that are not really culturally re relevant or uh, misused. Uh, there's many kinds of uh, of way, many ways that that can fail. NFT projects can fail, I guess, and of course that will happen to many of them. Yeah. I don't think this is specific to NFTs or crypto. In real life, yes. we see that happening whenever there's a trend. A bunch of shops open to cover that trend. Eventually, most of them will die out. So yeah, I don't see yeah. it as a risk of NFTs in general. And uh, a note about that, I mean, we are just, um, from my perspective, at the, the tip of the iceberg of the actual technology. So the technology doesn't care about artwork. Right now, we we think when we think of an NFT, we think of digital art. Um, and and don't get me wrong, it's a wonderful in my mind, like it's a wonderful opportunity for all of these new develop like digital identity for artists to create a living, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But NFTs as a technology, you can track, for example, ownership of land with it. Yeah, and I'm sure that eventually the governments will utilize this. Um, uh, to to for, yeah, you'll have a smart contract, and I can say, okay, I'll like um, my my patch of land here. I'll cut it in half, and um, I do that on the on the smart contract of the government, and the taxes are automatically paid and routed, and um, nobody has like it's automatically verifiable that it happened, and you don't need to go to the uh, notary, and um, it's much cheaper and much more efficient. So, sometime in the future, NFTs will be used for all kinds of things, um, uh, not just digital art. Um, and this is just like, it's, it's, um, this is what happened to be the thing that in people started experimenting with the, the technology, but, um, the under, like, even if there is a downtrend at some point, um, in, in terms of the interest of, in the art, I think the technology will definitely not go away. It's such a fundamental technology, um, that, uh, it will be, a very important part of all areas of, of society. I think, I, I believe so, yeah. yeah. For the pictures attract attention, if I understand you well, this is the initial phase with the pictures. And eventually, yeah, that will develop into something more, you know, just like we've life. seen uh, with Bitcoin. Five years ago, it was just an idea. Now we have countries adopting it as their currency companies buying Bitcoin in their treasury. So this is just, and, and we're just focusing on the art and a niche within the art space. This is yes. coming to audio, to, I don't know what, everything, fashion. Yeah. And also, I mean, one um, aspect of NFTs that is just starting really to be explored, I think, and there are some examples of it, but is like, um, the, the idea of NFTs unlock, unlocking really access to things like what we talked about initially with the community aspect, that's like a, a, also a, a, small, a small example of this, but you could have NFTs as tickets to events, as conferences, uh, um, 
etc etc yeah what i think will be interesting at some point is for example having books as nfts and what's so fascinating from the from the creators of intellectual property um with nfts is when i write a book i sell it to you um you sell it to a third person i never see any any of that right but the smart contracts in the nft world they can sort of enforce um a cut of that resale to be sent to me as well that innovation alone i think changes so much of the economic dynamics with intellectual property that it's uh, going to really like all digital media be it art or writing or um yeah audio as you said music um will at one point i'm sure be handled by these contracts and really enable sort of if you think of it it, it you can really like i see a future where this enables a new renaissance of like a new creative wave because so much more people are enabled to learn uh, earn a living with this like you publish a song on spotify you get what 2 dollars a month or something um as a normal artist yeah but in the in the crypto space you basically get rid of and 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 spotify i mean they have a great product but they take 90% of the profits that number i just made up but whatever it is it's up there <laughs> um, and and in the nft world it's the other way around like these platforms that that drive the economic interactions between people they take maybe 2% or there's even platforms that don't take anything there's just basically smart contracts that run themselves and yeah and and then the big chunk of uh, the profits go to the artists so um yeah it's really interesting i think but then everything will become fungible now if you sell books if you sell records it's no longer unique yeah you can have non fungible tokens as well yeah you can say there is they would be fungible copies. actually they they would in a way be fungible so if you sell the same book 10000 times for example it's um, fungible it, it's still the same book yeah the digital book is fungible it's always the same book but you can still track these interactions on chain and you can limit them So you can say okay there's actually only 10000 items available and that's special to people yeah maybe um, yeah, you can do all sorts of things i've also seen nft projects where each transaction transfer adds something into the the nft itself so the nft evolves and pr- it kind of incentivizes sharing and transfers so i read the book but then i hand it over to something someone else and part of the story is revealed or whatever you can create you know it's just yes, creativity is the limit here sure yeah um i want to go back on the financial aspect because we left you at earning all the money from the minting and buying a punk <laughs> sure and, and i don't want to paint the wrong picture because out of all the projects i've seen this is one of the fairest and most transparent ones so can you explain exactly what happens with all the money i mean part of it is yours and rightly so the founder has the potential to make money but then there's a treasury which promotes the ongoing uh, utility of the project or the hackathons and the artathons that you mentioned so how do we separate the two yeah good point so the initial sale that went all to to an address that i control basically mm-hmm. and i regard that sort of as 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 mine or the the projects like yeah. the, um they created a company for the project and um that company now holds these funds and uh, apart from that 
um, many of these, not all, but um, many or most of today's NFT projects, they have this, what we just talked about, this um, uh, a, a percentage of secondary sales um, and the revenue of that um, uh, being shared with the initial creator. And we also have that, it's 5%. Some have um, two and a half, some have 15, uh, some have 10. Um, there's no real rule around it. Uh, I settled with 5% and basically split that in half. So every every secondary sale um, and, and tertiary and uh, like every sale that's going to happen in the future, 5% of the sale value um, goes to an to a treasury. And of that, half goes to the company and half goes to a community treasury. The half that goes to, to the company, the idea is um, to fund the ongoing development of the project. So I have an entire roadmap um, with all, all sorts of things coming up. And I like it's just the initial ideas and there potentially could be many, many more um, things that we work on. Um, and even if, if it's just the maintenance of that thing indefinitely, um, that, that's the two and a half percent. Um, uh, so half of the five percent that goes into that. And the other two and a half percent go to this community treasury that, as you said, funds these hackathons and an artathon. So, for example, the first one that we did was a open source tool. Um, so we had a bunch of people coming together, some formed teams, some did it individually. And the task was to create a collection analyzer that works with any uh, NFT collection on the blockchain, but also with ours and spits out in, uh, uh, statistics like the rarity, for example, for, for the individual tokens. Yeah, so that was a, an activity by the community that creates value for the project, creates value for the entire space, and is funded by the project, which I think is really cool. Um, and then we did an art contest. And um, yeah, we'll, 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 we have to figure out what to do now with um, as a next one. But it's kind of fascinating how much value is being exchanged and thus how much value is being redirected with these um, 5% secondary sales to the project. Again, it's, it's wild in a way. It's like, I think by now we are at about four and a half million US dollars that's been traded. And um, so it's, yeah, it's not nothing. It's a very significant, um, especially for if I were myself and now I have an entire team and we're four people. And, and yeah, continue to work on this stuff. And uh, that funds basically, yeah, the ongoing development. And for the community aspect, um, what would be interesting, I think, to explore as well, besides the competitions that we've done is just giving out grants. So basically tasks. So develop this open source tool for the community or yeah, whatever it would be. And, and then people can, can work on that and earn money again through the project in a way. Yes. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that also ties into the whole Web3 and concept where you work yeah. for bounties instead of having the True. salary, which True. is yeah. really interesting. As an example, for example, we had one guy, again, completely permissionlessly. It's also very interesting, I think, from a, a, a human attitude towards creation and potential and stuff. Um, we had this guy, um, Akuti. Um, is, his, is his name. Um, he created an amazing bot, uh, a little robot, a chat bot that people can interact with in our community. And by now the bot does 
all kinds of things. It uses, um, so the punkscapes are these little landscapes, right? You can attach these together. People in the, I didn't actually expect that that would be a thing. And oh, yeah, this is where, it. when you are creating my, my banner the other day. True, yes. I stuck <laughs> multiple ones together yeah. to create a wider banner. Mm. So the format is actually of one punkscape. It's a three by yeah. one. But then you can stick them together to have six by one or nine by one, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Akuti created this wonderful bot that you can just feed the IDs and it spits out the combined image of multiple scapes. Um, or it can find you matching one. So it has an AI that analyzes the borders of each punkscape wow. and then suggests uh, punkscapes that match well to the one you, you give it. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, th this guy uh, just... He wasn't even part of the hackathons or whatever. He just it was a fun thing for him to to build, like one night or something, um, or probably a couple of nights. The initial version, and he he sent me a personal message. Hey, Jalil, I built this thing. Do you want to check it out? Here's the link. And uh, I thought it was amazing. I added it to the project. People loved it. And as a thank you, I I paid him uh, at that time. I paid him one Ethereum. Um, which is not a non-significant amount uh, of money if you think of it in, in, in dollars. And this creates this wonderful dynamic of people just creating value and contributing and working together. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he lives. Um, but now he's on the core team. And he, he awesome. um, yes, he's part of the team and he's continuing to work on, on this spot, for example, nice, and a bunch nice. of other things that we have planned. Yeah. So I think to, to wrap up, now you, we talked about the launch and what goes into that. Moving forward, what do you expect and what have you already implemented in terms of team? What kind of roles are necessary? And what's the day-to-day -day like for you and for the rest of the team? Yes, great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> in a way, like my, my personal routine has been kind of all over the place. I was lucky enough to not have a proper job when I yeah. did this project. Um, my expectation <laughs> for the project uh, was just a portfolio piece, basically, because I wanted to move into the Web3 space. I didn't expect any of, of, of hmm, the success that has come from it. Um, uh, and since then, I must say my, my, like, my work routine is a little bit all over the place um, because it's so distributed also the community, right? We have people from China, we have people from the US, um, there's just no sense of time anymore. <laughs> Sometimes um, I feel sorry for you because I go in and I ask some random question and immediately you comment. <laughs> like this guy <laughs> must be switching between 10, 20 different things. In a <laughs> and way, I just yeah, distracted sorry. him. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't, feel, don't, feel, don't feel bad about that at all. I love it. Um, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, beautiful um, uh, to, to be able to be, to be a part of that. Um, and yeah, so no, it's wonderful. It's, it's just a little bit all over the place. So as a team, we don't have proper times or anything like that. We have responsibility and everybody shares progress. And um, um, so we have a bunch of things that we're working on. One um, guy, for example, also very interesting because it's so, um, he's actually a lawyer, mm -hmm. but he knows how to program also. And, and now he's working close to full time on, um, animations for the punkscape. So they're actually static images and he's generating animations, um, uh, looping anima animations for each one that we can just, um, uh, provide more value with to the, to the holders, basically. So that's one thing, for example, being worked on by, by one person. And then um, the other guy I just mentioned, he's building, continuing to build the bot. And then also 
you know, we have a bunch of, I can't go into the details quite yet, but um, there, um, we, we have this thing on the roadmap called the 27 year gallery, where every punkscape has a date. And uh, the dates start in February next year. And they basically 10,000 for every day is close to 30 years. Um, so for 30 years, every day we'll have one, um, one punkscape for the day. And um, we have a bunch of things planned for, for that. And that has been uh, worked on. Um, then we have now just a couple of days ago, we added um, a guy named Frank to the team and he's dealing with marketing. And this is how we basically, we split responsibilities and it's less about when is who working. It's just like, do we think that we all provide value to the project? And as soon as that's the case, then everybody's good. And if not, we can just talk about it. <laughs> yeah. and so these will be tradi more traditional roles where they get uh, kind of a salary, no? Uh, oh yeah. So um, interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think we have to, they, they are, incentivized by the success of the project. So um, uh, also a percentage of the secondary selfies, they, they go to them. Okay. And I think that's the fairest way to go about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Very cool. And yeah, that's basically also part of the two and a half percent that the company takes is then redistributed to the team. Yeah, um, yeah I think it was, it's been amazing. Uh, just to wrap up, I would like to speak about, have you speak about what's coming next and some highlights maybe that you look forward to. Obviously more punks owning punkscapes. That's what we all want, but that's also been on the rise um, whenever I check. So that's good. And yeah, any closing words, but specifically what's coming next sure. for, for the project. So I think the the I mean some of the stuff that I've talked about, of course. Um, the next major thing is um, I'm I'm working on a, a builder tool that lets you um, take the NFTs that you own and put them on the Punkscape. So I think one very interesting aspect about about these banner NFTs is that they provide an opportunity to tie in all the different other projects that you're involved with. So you, for example, you have a CryptoPunk, you, but you can also have a, an ape or a wizard or whatever. So um, we have a bunch of projects now in this builder tool and you can have your Punkscapes and then basically it's a, like a little design tool, um, but it makes it really easy for you. It, it has all of the NFTs that you own and there uh, we made them transparent and you can just put them on the, on the Punkscape and the tool will, for example, force you to align the pixels so that looks really good. And um, uh, yeah, so that, that's one major thing. And then like what's so interesting about these banners is yeah, how they, how they bring everything together and kind of build a bridge between different communities. The project of course was very focused on the, or is kind of focused on the crypto punks um, and the one day punks, these initial punks that I created, but we've seen very good engagement from other communities. Also, I completely didn't expect any of that. Um, so there's a bunch of pixel art, uh, profile identity communities, and um, like the, the, the cyber Kongs and the dystopian punks and um, all, all kinds of projects. Um, and um, yeah, they, they work great on the punkscapes as well. So that's one of the next major things um, that are coming out for the project. And I'm super excited about it. I, I think it's going to be very cool. Yeah. yeah, I think you can, it can even morph in a way where we didn't expect because for example i'm into different projects right 
it, it's hard for me to decide which one will be my PFP. So potentially yes. I could just use my real face because I, I don't really care about being anonymous and have the banner showing a few select PFPs that I love all tied together with a banner. Absolutely. Yes. And I think second, that is also a, yeah. a great solution for more traditional settings, right? Like on LinkedIn, it would be probably kind of weird to put like your punk or whatever as your profile picture. But the banner is something that you can be a little more creative with, right? So um, it's a cool opportunity. In terms of the PFPs, I'm seeing that. So I've, I've been uh, uh, very enthusiastic about the Doodles project. Yes. And I'm seeing a lot of the holders change the background and put in a lot of them are using the letters by Vinny, forgot his surname. That's another project that has kind of, it fits really nicely. And of course, I, you had actually done my background for the, for, was it? Yeah, it was the doodle actually, where you inserted the. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yes, yes. So I think there's a very good use case for inserting the punkscapes within as a background. And that, I think that's what you mentioned with the builder, right? Exactly. Yes, so, there so might we'll have be a tool a, to do that yeah. automatically. We don't have to do it by hand. <laughs> because every every single day on the Doodles chat, everybody's asking, can you change the banner for the, the background for me to, to something else? So I think they yeah. fit really well with any project, really, given yeah. the yeah. pixelated kind of lend itself to a background as well. Yes, yes. Very cool. One last question from my side, uh, Jali. Yes, What sure. happens if you one day decide to enjoy your money and you just leave or um, you sell the project to someone who is not as passionate and creative as you as you are is there a risk there that the value can go down or not um great question um yes no we're not wrapping up so of course that's <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I guess, of course, that's an a possibility, yes, um, that I leave at some point. But um, I think there's ways to... Um, so in a way, uh, um, in the best case, and I, 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 wouldn't, I, I would never leave the project before, um, before it's settled in a way where I can trust that it's, it's going to just continue to live on. The beautiful thing about these projects is they live on the blockchain. And uh, if set up correctly... You can also set them up uh, uh, up in, in ways where they are dependent on external forces. But if you set them up in a way um, where they are completely distributed, um, it doesn't need me or any person to continue to do them. So um, this is true for, for a lot of crypto projects in general, where the project, the founder leaves and, and suddenly where a few years afterwards, and even in a way, Bitcoin itself is the foundational story of this, right? So Satoshi Nakamoto left the project and nobody knows who he is or where he is, but the project really flourished in a way, even because of that, because it was independent of a person. Um, and this is, this can be true. It isn't necessarily, but this can be true for NFT projects. And um, there's many examples of, of projects that actually where the founder leaves and then afterwards, because it still lives on on the blockchain and nobody can tamper with it, they, they actually flourish. So in a way, it can even be a, be a good thing, it seems. But, but yeah, so to your question, there is multiple interesting uh, things that uh, one can do and that we're looking into. And um, one of the most crypto native things to do is to um, uh, at some point set up a 
a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO, um, what we call it, uh, which is basically a community of people um, that have some way to, uh, to uh, some some form of tokenized governance. So you can you know who has um, which amount of say, or everybody has the same say, but you know who is part of this, and they govern the project um, basically like a completely free uh, democracy in a way. Um, and you can set these projects up in a way where where um, that is uh, possible, and that's something that I would look to migrate the project into at some point. Um, not super short term, but um, definitely uh, medium term. And um, yeah, to to make the project um, in a way run itself um, or ru be run by the community. Um, and but but the main, I mean, we really want to get these projects to a point where where they just stand for themselves as an as a piece of art in a way. Um, and there's that for example, the CryptoPunks, the most iconic one. There's like nothing ever happened to them and uh, um, the company that created them larva labs that they, they're not really like they're just there and they would be there if larva labs left it's completely permissionless and and um, i think that's in a way a big part of the value so um yeah <laughs> um, does that answer the the question yeah more or less yes <laughs> I, I think well, we're the also... fact that you are thinking about it um, gives me comfort I think we're also yeah. very early in, in this whole space, even in terms of legislation, especially in Europe with DAOs, it's not easy or even, I don't know if it's even possible because I've thought about that myself on how to create a DAO legally or even how yeah, to create a company behind uh, a crypto NFT project. Yeah, not so not so easy, even in terms Definitely. of licensing, it's a bit murky. So there are many legal things that are yet to be defined, I would say. 100%. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been amazing. And the, the real life persona surpasses even the <laughs> the virtual persona. So I'm happy <laughs> <laughs> that my impression of you just got better, not worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Likewise. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor. It's the first podcast that I've ever been on. So it's, uh, uh, it's then, a great honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and for everyone listening, uh, truly, it's been my first project, but I have it at heart just because of the nice people I, I met and continue to meet and just so help how helpful the community is, not only yourself, but also some of the other active members. Oh, if I can so, say one thing about that, sorry to interrupt yeah, that. We have, um, like, there's, it's really been mind-blowing to me. Um, I, I, I couldn't have brought the project to where it is now without the people in this community. Like, I don't regard it as, uh, like, but at this point, um, yes, I initially created the project, but we wouldn't be where we are without these people that just... Um, it's so beautiful because it really makes everybody an owner and they act as owners and they promote the project and they help other people in the community. I, I couldn't, ne could never handle it myself. And there's wonderful people in there that really do, do most of the work. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. And thank you so much. Of luck with the new features. And thank you. Well, I'll see you online on the skirt. <laughs> yeah. Chat yeah with you. Sure. All the best. Thanks, Have a good thanks, night. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. You too. Bye. 
And that's a wrap, guys, for today. Hope you enjoyed this episode. As I said in the beginning, I've written articles on NFTs, which I'll link in the show notes. Do check out Punkscapes as well and join the Discord group. You'll find me there. And, and of course, Jalil and many other crypto enthusiasts and obviously the holders of this NFT project. I'll be also recording a few more episodes about NFTs, so stay tuned for that. And if you have any questions, please do reach out on podcast at mastermind.fm. Thanks again and have a nice week.